Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, the center, uh, together with the Federalist Society's Separation of Powers and Practice Group, is sponsoring today's event. And I want to welcome you all to the Cato Institute on behalf both of Cato and of the Federalist Society. Um, we're here today to mark the publication of a new book, uh, The Tie Goes to Freedom, uh, Justice uh, Anthony M. Kennedy on Liberty, written by Professor Helen Knowles of the State University of New York at Oswego and published uh, just uh, th this month by uh, Roman and Littlefield. Over the more than two decades during which he served on the Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy, it's safe to say, has been the court's most enigmatic member Standing precisely between the conservative and the liberal wings, he's cast the deciding vote in countless controversial cases, sometimes siding with the conservatives, other times with the liberals. Two terms ago, for example, he was in the majority in all 24 of the court's 5-4 decisions. In fact, he was in the majority in all but two of the court's decisions that term, and his pivotal role on the court continues to this day. It's no stretch, therefore, to say that as goes Kennedy, so goes the court. None of that speaks to the character or quality uh, or implications of Justice Kennedy's opinions, of course. Just this morning, for example, the top story in Washington's Legal Times is about the massive delay in civil trials in the D.C. Circuit that's resulted from last term's Boumediene decision extending habeas corpus protections to Guantanamo detainees. Justice Kennedy authored that opinion over the vigorous dissents of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia. And in a 1995 case of particular interest to those of us here at the Cato Institute, U.S. term limits v. Thornton, Justice Kennedy cast uh, the deciding vote that ended the grassroots effort to have a Congress less insulated from political accountability. There's no way to appropriately account for, uh, in one volume, for more than uh, 1,700 cases on which Justice Kennedy has cast a vote, and Professor Knowles uh, has uh, not taken on so Herculean a task. Rather, she's uh, focused on Kennedy's decisions concerning speech, equal protection, and personal liberty, and has from them drawn a sympathetic but not uncritical portrait of a justice wrestling with the great issues of the day in the context of the Constitution uh, and the timeless issues of moral, political, and legal theory, all by way of drawing out the modest libertarianism that she finds as the thread in Justice Kennedy's opinions. For a program today, uh, Professor Knowles will discuss her book for about 30 minutes or so, after which we'll have comments uh, from uh, one of her mentors at uh, Boston University, Professor Randy Barnett, now at the Georgetown Law Center. Professor Knowles uh, will then respond briefly, after which uh, we will um, hear uh, from the audience questions and answers, and then we will retire for lunch upstairs in the Winter Garden. Let me then briefly uh, 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 give you um, a um, bio on um, Professor Helen Knowles. Uh, it is a very, very impressive uh, curriculum vitae that she has for so young a scholar. She uh, graduated only in 2000, uh, from Liverpool Hope University College in Liverpool, England. 
uh, and she graduated first in her class, uh, the Pollard Prize for the highest final year grades achieved by a student in a BA single honors program of the Department of American Studies. She then uh, enrolled in Boston University to pursue her doctorate, which she did and completed in 2007 with a dissertation called A Dialogue of Liberty, the Constitutional uh, the classical liberal and civic education principles of Justice Kennedy's vision of judicial power. Um, I, I asked her just before we went on whether it was that it was libertarianism that took her to Justice Kennedy or the other way around. Surprisingly, it was the other way around. She focused on Justice Kennedy and from that uh, developed the libertarian theory that serves as the first part of her book. Uh, I will introduce uh, Professor Barnett uh, just before he uh, uh, comments on the book, but please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Helen Knowles. Thank you, Roger, and thank you to the folks at the Cato Institute for, inter for inviting me here today. I accepted the invitation to come to this book forum immediately. And then I took a look at the people who participated in previous book forums. And to say the least, I was shocked because I was very much, much more junior and certainly hadn't published anything like as much as the people who participated in previous book forums. So it's a real delight and a real honor to be invited here today. And I would also like to thank Randy for agreeing to come and comment on my book. And I anticipate very productive feedback from him that I'm sure will help me to understand a lot more about what I have put in my book. Imagine that it is oral argument day at the US Supreme Court. Following some administrative announcements, the Chief Justice clears his throat and indicates that the court will now hear arguments in the first case of the day. The attorney rises, proceeds to the lectern, and offers the following opening observation. <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I understand that this will be a difficult case for you, the court, to decide. If a majority of this court believes that the correct interpretation of the word liberty in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment is a narrow one that is defined by closely consulting the nation's traditions and history, then my client will not prevail in this case. In the months since the court had granted certiorari in the case, if court watchers were to be believed, then the votes of only two of the justices were truly up for grabs. However, on this occasion, the attorney's opening sentence prompted all nine members of the court to sit up and take notice. Encouraged, the attorney continued. <coughs> if, on the other hand, a majority of this court affords liberty a more expansive interpretation, embodying the concepts of individual autonomy, dignity and responsibility, then the government faces a far greater burden of justifying its actions in this case. Although this scene is fictional, it addresses a current jurisprudential reality. 
that the constitutional boundaries of individual liberty, as defined by the US Supreme Court in the 21st century, will most likely be drawn by reference to one of the two sets of interpretive guidelines described by my imaginary attorney. And in the immediate future, in closely divided cases, the prevailing interpretation will likely be what Anthony Kennedy says it is. If those who have tried to explain Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence are to be believed, this is not much help at all, because Justice Kennedy is, according to other commentators, a flip-flopping, inconsistent jurist who is far more likely to pepper his opinions with pompous, meaningless rhetoric than with well-defined legal doctrine. My book challenges that conclusion. Now, I don't claim that Justice Kennedy has an overarching judicial philosophy, for he himself has said that he doesn't have such a jurisprudence. Rather, what I demonstrate is that in certain areas of the law, one can find consistency in his opinions, a consistency that comes from his employment of a modest libertarianism. Now, I suspect that, to many people in this room, the idea of describing Kennedy's jurisprudence as libertarian may come as a surprise, because Kennedy does not shy away from using an expansive type of judicial review. However, imagine a libertarianism that uses the authority of the state's judges, neutral decision-makers, to ensure that government actions by other branches of government, pass far more stringent tests when they impinge upon liberty. Now imagine that this is a libertarianism that takes an especially dim view of government actions that demean the individual, negatively affect a person's dignity, diminish personal responsibility, or treat in a particular way because of their race. This, it seems to me, would be a libertarianism that is entirely consistent with the basic tenets of, liber of libertarian thought. This holds true even if the means to achieving the goal of greater individual freedom and respect is vigorous use of the authority vested in a governmental institution. Before explaining the different elements that make up Kennedy's modest libertarianism, a few words about what my book does not do. First of all, nowhere do I call Justice Kennedy a libertarian. I think it would be entirely inappropriate to call him a libertarian. He quite clearly is not. Secondly, nowhere do I claim that all of his jurisprudence is modestly libertarian. And the third thing that my book does, is, does not do is related to the second thing. Thirdly, I focus exclusively on non-economic liberty. Nowhere in the book do I discuss cases dealing with such things as the takings clause. Finally, the emphasis of my analysis is the justice's behaviour as it appears in his words. Consequently, I analysed his speeches and his opinions rather than counting his votes in different cases. Now, if that is what the book does not do, what about what the book actually does? 
Well, all too often, the adjective libertarian and or the noun libertarian are bandied about by commentators, particularly critical commentators, without accompanying efforts to delve into their meaning, beyond a basic observation that, yes, libertarianism stands for limited government. Well, Justice Kennedy's libertarianism is modest because it avoids much of the radicalised, unrestrained and polarising rhetoric and policy proposals that its critics often associate with this political philosophy. In other words, Justice Kennedy's modestly libertarian jurisprudence gets us back to the basic fundamental principles of this particular approach to relationships between individuals and their governments. From my analysis, I reached the conclusion that in the areas of free speech, race-based classifications, gay rights and abortion, the justice has spent 20 years on the court producing opinions defending three of these fundamental principles. First of all, tolerance of diverse views. Secondly, treating every individual with dignity. And thirdly, and perhaps most controversially, protecting the boundaries of liberty by asking that that liberty be exercised responsibly. So, the first principle. The first principle is what I call the universal element of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence. And it comes through in his First Amendment free speech opinions, an area of the law in which Kennedy was clearly the most libertarian (coughs) member of the Rehnquist Court. If other commentators have dared to put Justice Kennedy and Libertarian in the same sentence, it has usually been when they have been describing his First Amendment free speech opinions. Here we see Kennedy in his First Amendment free speech opinions drawing on the same principles as those that underpin the Dialogue on Freedom, a civic educational initiative that he created alongside the American Bar Association following the terrorist attacks of 9-11. This is a very interesting initiative for understanding Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence, and it's something that I think has been paid insufficient attention. It's been mentioned in a couple of footnotes in articles, and it's kind of, well, it's an example of Kennedy at his pompous best, running around trying to tell American high school students how they should be reacting to the attacks of 9-11. But in actual fact, if you delve into the idea of the dialogue on freedom, it becomes really clear that it's a great way to understand his jurisprudence. The program that is the dialogue on freedom encourages the idea that all viewpoints should be tolerated and that this tolerance leads to a more enlightened citizenry. In his First Amendment opinions... This view translates into Kennedy's passionate opposition to government efforts to discriminate against a person's speech based on the content or views of that individual's expression. Governments are, as Kennedy has said, most dangerous when they try to tell people what to think. Consequently, Kennedy has sought to permit only an extremely small number of content-based restrictions on speech. The goal of Kennedy's First Amendment jurisprudence can be said to be the preservation of an individual's autonomy over their thought processes, 
a fundamentally libertarian idea of, prever of preserving self-sovereignty. To achieve this goal, Kennedy has challenged the test that has for a long time been a staple of the court's First Amendment jurisprudence. The idea of strict scrutiny requiring the government to show that a regulation furthers a compelling state interest and is the option that places the least restriction on the expression it regulates. Although he has not said that much about this in recent years, there is little reason to believe that Kennedy has abandoned the view that he expressed during both his confirmation hearings and the early terms of his Supreme Court tenure. This is the view that content-based regulations are so hostile to individual expressive freedom and are so presumptively unconstitutional that not even strict scrutiny, a standard of judicial review that few government actions can survive, is the right test to use. In other words, there can be no compelling justification for government actions that have the effect of saying we, the government, require you to be silent on certain issues. For, as Kennedy has written, the right to think is the beginning of freedom. Moving on to the humane element of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence. The humane element is something to which I devote two chapters, and it has led him to build on past justices' efforts to reformulate standard judicial tests. The humane element emphasizes the importance of preserving the dignity of an individual by treating him or her as an individual. This is achieved by blocking government efforts to treat people differently in both positive and negative ways because of their membership in certain groups. Membership based, for example, on one's race or sexual orientation. At Kennedy's confirmation hearing, Pete Wilson, the former governor of California and US senator, said in support of Kennedy's nomination, I think it strikes him, Justice Kennedy, as terribly unfair that anyone's individual potential should be in any way limited by their being classed as a member of a group and treated in accordance with their group membership rather than what they deserve to receive as individuals. That perfectly sums up the humane element of Kennedy's jurisprudence. When the government treats people differently because of their race, even if this treatment is positive, Kennedy says that only strict scrutiny will do. It is worth noting, however, that really this is strict scrutiny according to Justice Kennedy. Because his formulation of this test is not one that finds much agreement on the court and is certainly one that, although in race-based cases, generates a colorblind reading of the Constitution, that colorblind reading certainly is nothing like as absolutist as that that is um, within the jurisprudence of some of his more conservative colleagues. Now, this brings me to a warning to anybody who wants to write about a justice who is still on the court. First of all, you encounter problems of access to material. The second concern is that that justice will one day issue an opinion 
that blows your thesis out of the water. (laughs) Now, Kennedy is clearly opposed to race-based classifications because they disrespect the dignity of the individual by treating that individual differently simply because of their race. Nevertheless, his solo concurring opinion two years ago in a case involving two different school districts' use of race as a factor in the assignment of students to public schools did initially suggest that Kennedy's racial classifications jurisprudence was marked by the inconsistency that I was trying feverishly to demonstrate was not there. However, upon closer examination, what we find is that his concurring opinion in that case, he he supported the conclusion that the school district's use of race as a factor for assigning students to public schools was unconstitutional. But what we see in his concurrence was not what one commentator described as a concrete doctrinal reversal by Kennedy. It does not contain an abandonment of his previous adherence to strict scrutiny in race-dependent cases. Rather, it takes very seriously the need for adherence to this level of judicial review, while at the same time acknowledging that some governmental efforts to encourage diversity in the classroom might actually make extremely valuable contributions to creating a dignified, enriched and educated society of individuals. Strict scrutiny is needed, he would say, but you've got to ensure that the government doesn't try and force diversity on people for doing so would threaten the status of individuals as the primary political units in society. Now, in contrast to strict judicial scrutiny, the government traditionally finds little difficulty in justifying its actions when those actions are reviewed using the rational basis standard. This is, however the standard that Kennedy has advocated using to review government efforts to discriminate against an individual because of their sexual orientation. Many members of the gay rights community criticise this approach because they argue that their rights would be much more secure if the court identified sexual orientation as a suspect classification that required strict judicial scrutiny. Kennedy disagrees saying that discrimination based on sexual orientation is invariably fueled by moral disapproval and animus towards gays and lesbians. When a societal majority manages to use this moral hostility to push through anti-gay legislation, its actions must, according to Kennedy, be unconstitutional because there cannot even be a rational basis for such morals-based legislating. In an abortion case that I will mention in a minute, Kennedy said, our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. This perfectly explains Kennedy's hostility to animus-based and morals-driven laws discriminating against homosexuals who are deprived of their own individualistic dignity when governments suppress them by enforcing their own moral codes. This brings me to 
the final element of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence and most definitely the most controversial element of his jurisprudence. This is the responsible element. And again, in the chapter in which I deal with this element of his jurisprudence, I again focus on an opinion that on its face had the potential to threaten my thesis. That is Kennedy's opinion for the court in 2007 in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, upholding a federal ban on so-called partial birth abortions. Somehow, Kennedy had managed to write an entire opinion about abortion without once using the word liberty. He did this while arguing that the opinion was entirely consistent with his contributions to the joint opinion in a 1992 case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a joint opinion which has an incredibly expansive understanding of individual liberty in it. So how does Kennedy reconcile these two opinions? The answer, as I say in my book, may be his responsible element of his jurisprudence. Unlike much libertarian theory, Kennedy's libertarianism does not separate rights and responsibilities. Kennedy uses the concept of personal responsibility to place limits on liberty. He is fond of saying that our understanding of the U.S. Constitution, which is the uppercase C Constitution, is incomplete without consideration of the country's other constitution, its lowercase c constitution, which is what Kennedy describes as the sum total of customs and mores of the community. The nature of some of Kennedy's rhetoric in Planned Parenthood versus Casey makes it easy to overlook the passages that embody this idea of the two constitutions and that qualify his seemingly effusive embrace of liberty. Casey is well known for what Justice Kennedy, excuse me, Justice Scalia, has disparagingly described as its sweet mystery of life passage. Far less attention is paid to Casey's reminder that the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence is not about to close its eyes to the fact that abortion is a unique act. That's an unfortunate oversight, because as Kennedy's abortion cases and opinions have shown, this fact is of crucial importance to him. The woman, he argues, is not isolated in her privacy or liberty, and a responsible exercising of her liberty will recognise this. It will recognise the consequences of her actions. Acting otherwise demonstrates a lack of self-control that stops one from crossing over the line that separates liberty from license. The problem in Carhartt, however, is that Kennedy can be accused of betraying this responsible element by using language that is decidedly paternalistic. This is language that was present in Casey, but what I've concluded was a sort of much kinder, gentler form of paternalism. Casey partially overruled two previous decisions from the 1980s, emphasising that a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy was one that must be exercised with apprehension of the full consequences of her decision, 
Casey concluded that the court had been wrong to strike down requirements that a woman contemplating an abortion be provided with truthful, non-misleading information about these consequences. However, there had to be an exemption for instances when a physician decided that the provision of this information would adversely affect a woman's health. Carhartt's formulation of the informed responsibility requirement is far less respectful of individual liberty. The state's interest in respect for life, wrote Kennedy, is advanced by the dialogue that better informs the political and legal systems, the medical profession, expectant mothers and society as a whole of the consequences that follow from a decision to elect a late-term abortion. However, it does not appear that Kennedy expected women to be either willing or able to adequately represent their interests in this dialogue. Although he conceded that the court found no reliable data to support it, he nevertheless considered it unexceptionable to conclude that some women come to regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. The state, therefore, is justified in protecting women from this emotional suffering by requiring that physicians performing abortions ensure their patients are fully informed about the details of the procedure to be used. Kennedy concluded that doctors were far less likely and far less able to be trusted to provide women with this sort of information when the the abortion that was involved was the type that was banned by the federal law upheld in Carhartt. Hence the need for government intervention to ensure women receive this information. This, of course, is an argument whose paternalistic overtones threaten to undermine or even obliterate any of its modest libertarianism. This is something about Kennedy's abortion jurisprudence that I'm not going to deny. However, I remain convinced that what Carhartt does not do is to confirm that his judicial decision-making is as inconsistent as people have spent two decades labelling it as. This is because, at the end of the day, a plausible case can be made that even though Carhartt does not contain the enthusiastic embrace of liberty that Casey does, what Kennedy's opinion in the 2007 case did was to exhibit the same commitment to liberty that is, liberty responsibly exercised, as was evident in his earlier abortion opinions. In conclusion, I would like to say that there are many things in my book with which people will take issue. This, I think, is entirely appropriate for a book about Justice Kennedy, who himself has been able to please all of the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time, but certainly not all of the people all of the time. My hope is that this book generates a meaningful dialogue, a dialogue that starts here today, about Kennedy's jurisprudence. It's a dialogue that I hope will move us away from the unhelpful and misleading assumption that his opinions demonstrate jurisprudential inconsistency and doctrinal weakness. For it is such a dialogue on liberty, Kennedy would argue, that will help to preserve and protect the Constitution 
and it will help to maintain interest in that document for future generations and show that that document is underpinned by principles of limited government that will help to ensure that at the end of the day, the tie does indeed go to freedom. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Knowles. And let me note that the book is available outside for purchase at a discount. And so please avail yourself of that opportunity after we uh, conclude. And uh, Professor Knowles will be happy to sign the book for you. We're now going to have comment from Professor Randy Barnett, whom, as I said, uh, was one of uh, Professor Knowles' dissertation uh, advisors at uh, Boston University. Um, Professor Barnett now holds the Carmack Waterhouse uh, Professor of Legal Theory uh, Chair at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. He's also taught uh, torts, criminal law, evidence, agency and partnership, and jurisprudence. He's a graduate of uh, Northwestern University and of the Harvard Law School. Uh, He's tried many felony cases as a prosecutor in Cook County, um, Illinois, in the uh, state's attorney's office in Chicago. Uh, He's been a visiting professor at Northwestern and at Harvard Law Schools. And in 2008, he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Constitutional Studies, uh, which he is enjoying right now. He's appeared uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court to argue the medical cannabis case, Gonzales v. Rage, uh, after successfully arguing uh, in the Ninth Circuit in that case, uh, one of the rare cases where the Ninth Circuit got it right and the Supreme Court got it wrong. Um, He's um, co-authored as well an amicus brief in Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, Randy appears um, frequently on uh, radio and television programs. He is the author of several books, including Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty, uh, Constitutional Law, Cases in Context, which is um, a very important book that gives a, it's a case book on the Constitution that takes an historical perspective to the evolution of the Constitution, unlike most other con law case books. He's the author of Contracts, Cases, and Doctrine. In his book, The Structure of Liberty, Justice, and the Rule of Law, was awarded the Ralph Gregory Elliott Book Award and has been translated into Japanese. Please welcome uh, Professor Randy Barnett. Thank you, Roger, for that introduction. It's a great pleasure, as always, to be uh, back at Cato. Um, And it is truly uh, a pleasure to be here to celebrate the publication of Helen Knowles' new book, The Tie Goes to Freedom. Um, Let me begin uh, by saying to Helen, Helen, this is a marvelous book. You should be very proud of your accomplishment here. I can sum up its virtues as follows. It is exceedingly well-researched. It is impressively accurate about the intricate body of constitutional cases and doctrines that it discusses. It is theoretically sensitive and insightful, and it is beautifully and above all clearly written. Notice I put the emphasis on clearly even above the beauty of the prose. And I think uh, you will agree, uh, or at least I'd like you to know, that the clarity of the book uh, uh, is manifested here in the clarity of Professor Knowles' presentation to you. 
She writes as clearly as she speaks. Now, while the subject of this book is Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence, to examine this, Helen was forced to explain to readers the complexity of constitutional decisions governing such topics as the First Amendment, the Due Process Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause. If you were simply looking for a book that accessibly explained the substance of this body of constitutional law and how it has developed over the past 50 years, this book would be a pretty good place to start. And all the book Although the book does much more than this, if it did not accurately and clearly explain these legal doctrines, it would have failed in its larger purpose. Now, Helen's larger purpose, of course, is to examine the constitutional decisions of Justice Anthony Kennedy, and in particular his decisions concerning individual liberty. This choice of topic excludes Justice Kennedy's views of such structural matters as federalism and separation of powers. For example, she does not examine why Justice Kennedy joined the conservative majority in Lopez and Morrison, which revived the idea that the Commerce Clause has limits, but then joined the liberal majority in in Gonzalez versus Raich, along with Justice Scalia, that seemed to scuttle any effort to enforce these limits. Nor does she discuss Justice Kennedy's controversial decisions about the scope of presidential powers during wartime. Now, naturally, I am curious to know what Helen thinks about Justice Kennedy's rulings on these structural topics and how they relate to his views on liberty. But my curiosity is a sign that Helen's book has successfully demonstrates her mastery of Justice Kennedy's decisions on liberty, which is why I want to know more. And I know Helen well enough to guess that she would insist on her need to study these subjects in depth before offering any opinion. This just just goes to show that Helen is a scholar, not a polemicist, and underscores that the tie goes to freedom is a work of scholarship and not polemics. In these short remarks, I can't possibly summarize or critique her analysis of Justice Kennedy's opinions concerning free speech, due process, and equal protection nor do I have a scholarly opinion of my own on how exactly to understand Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence. I read this book as much to learn as to critique, and what I learned seems quite plausible to me. So instead, let me briefly consider her thesis that Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence can be labeled as modestly libertarian. As an immodest libertarian myself, (laughs) I should admit that I was initially skeptical of this claim. And I suspect many others will be as well. True, I published an article in the Cato Supreme Court Review describing his opinion in Lawrence v. Texas as Justice Kennedy's libertarian revolution. But contrary to how my essay was interpreted by other law professors, I was neither making a prediction about the future direction of the court nor purporting to describe Justice Kennedy's intentions as deliberately revolutionary. Rather, my claim was that Justice Kennedy... Uh, did not ground his decision in Lawrence on a right of privacy, but rather grounded it on liberty, nor did his opinion follow the approach of Washington versus Glucksburg that narrowly narrowly defines unenumerated liberties at their most specific level and then limits judicial protection of those liberties to those that are uh, deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history. Because his opinion shows so sharply departed from previous approaches to the protection of unenumerated liberties, had Justice Kennedy's opinion been written by a law student as an answer to a final exam question in constitutional law at that time, it would surely have received a poor grade. My only claim was that if Justice Kennedy's approach in Lawrence were widely followed, it would constitute a revolutionary increase in the judicial defense of liberty. And for this, I gave his opinion 
an A. Regrettably, his approach in Lawrence has not been used again by the Supreme Court. Until it is, lower courts will not take it seriously as a rule of law. For example, on remand to the Ninth Circuit in Raich, the case that, as Roger Roger told you, I was one of the lawyers, uh, we got nowhere arguing Lawrence in defense of Angel Raich's liberty to preserve her life by using medical cannabis, which was allowed by state law. Our due process claim was doomed when the Court of Appeals chose instead to employ the more conservative approach in Glucksburg. Given his liberty-oriented opinion in Lawrence, then, there is some reason to suspect that Justice Kennedy does harbor some libertarian sympathies. But if he were truly a libertarian, I imagine that we libertarians would have detected this by now and have elevated Justice Kennedy to the status of a hero. (coughs) This has clearly not happened. So in what respect does Helen characterize Justice Kennedy as libertarian? The answer can be found in her intriguing first chapter about libertarianism itself. I commend this chapter to those of you who may not be interested enough in Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence to read the entire book. As a libertarian who did not grow up in the American libertarian movement, Helen offers an analysis of libertarianism that is detached from preconceptions held by many American libertarians. In this section, in, in a section in, in which she, in a subsection in which she entitles, uh, she entitles uh, "Deconstructing Libertarianism Principles." Um, that's colon principles. Helen identifies the core of libertarianism as four principles: first, individual self ownership or self sovereignty; second, bounded liberty as opposed to license; third, limited government as opposed to anarchy; and fourth the harm principle. Of course, many American libertarians, such as myself, believe that the harm principle is too general to provide guidance, and for this reason, one needs a theory of rights to distinguish those harms that are permissibly imposed on others from those harms that may be justly prohibited. And some libertarians reject limited government in favor of a polycentric legal order that can be characterized as a form of anarchism. But this diversity among libertarians does not undermine Helen's basic point. Her four principles can be considered the core content that all libertarians share in common. For example, whether or not some would prefer a polycentric legal order to limited government, all libertarians prefer Lockean limited government to the Hobbesian Leviathan. And whether they believe that a rights theory is needed to specify conduct that may be justly prohibited, all libertarians believe that individuals should be be free to choose any conduct that does not harm others. If these four principles are the common core of libertarianism, then it is easier to see how Justice Kennedy's free speech, due process, and equal protection clause decisions can be viewed as modestly libertarian. For as Helen chronicles, in his opinion, Justice Kennedy repeatedly stresses individual dignity and the need for individuals to make and live by their own life choices, constitutional limitations on government's interference with these choices, and the need for government to justify its restrictions on liberty on the basis of some harm to others, some harm apart from the fact that a majority finds an exercise of liberty to be morally offensive. In characterizing Justice Kennedy's views as libertarian, Helen takes pains to repeatedly label them as modestly libertarian. Now, one source of this modesty could lie in what Justice Kennedy counts as a harm. Perhaps believing that conduct that does no harm to another um, should be permitted, 
uh, and that moral offense does not count as a harm, puts you on the libertarian side of the line. But there are a host of potential harms to others that libertarians would acknowledge as real, but still insist are nevertheless permissible. The cases evaluated by Helen do not tell us much more about Justice Kennedy's view of harm to others than that he rejects moral offense as a harm that standing alone justifies restricting at least personal or intimate liberty. And the modesty of Justice Kennedy's libertarianism can be more clearly identified in how he distinguishes liberty from license. For libertarians, whereas license refers to the freedom to do whatever you want, liberty refers to doing whatever you want with what is justly yours. In other words, for libertarians, liberty is the rightful exercise of freedom, and the rightful freedom of one person is bounded by the rightful freedoms of everyone else. But, as Helen is at pains to show, Justice Kennedy also sees liberty as bounded by the need to exercise uh, freedom responsibly, regardless of whether an irresponsible act violates the rights of others or not. By this, he does not mean responsible in the sense that, for example, the Liberty Fund sometimes refers to or always refers to as a society of free and responsible individuals. He means that the irresponsible exercise of liberty can be regulated or prohibited by government. Although not noted in her book, during my oral argument in Rache, I certainly witnessed up close and personally Justice Kennedy's visceral hostility to any loosening of drug laws, even to assist the suffering, and the dying. Of course, many conservatives define liberty as a freedom to act, but only – let me strike that. Of course, many conservatives define liberty as a freedom to act, but only in a responsible and moral manner. And license they define as acting irresponsibly and immorally. So this may be a reason to question uh, the claim that Justice Kennedy is even modestly libertarian. But in his opinion, in, in other words, he might be just being conservative. But in, this opi- but in his opinion in Lawrence, Justice Kennedy clearly rejects the conservative equation of immorality with licentiousness, which is why I think many conservatives were outraged by his opinion in Lawrence. In this important way, and it is important, he parts company with many conservatives. In addition, it is useful to keep in mind that there are two distinct types of conservatives – those conservatives for whom tradition is at the core of their political views and those conservatives for whom liberty is at the core of their conservatism. For example, we can distinguish between traditionalist conservatives like Robert Bork from libertarian conservatives like Rush Limbaugh. Perhaps due to Justice Kennedy's emphasis on responsible exercises of liberty, he is better labeled as a libertarian conservative rather than as a modest libertarian. But this is a pretty fine line to draw. And do libertarians really want to draw such a line? In this way, Helen's thesis that Justice Kennedy's opinions are modestly libertarian raises anew the question of who should be considered inside the libertarian tent and who is outside. Perhaps one answer to this question can be found in the book's title itself, The Tie Goes to Freedom. If that is one's gut-level instinct, then I think a case can be made that one is on the libertarian side of the line. After all, most important rival political philosophies deny this. They insist instead that the tie goes to equality, or the tie goes to the majority, 
or to wealth maximization, or to morality, or to authority, or to even social order. Once on the libertarian side of the line, the greater one's commitment to liberty, the higher the burden the government must overcome to restrict its exercise. No longer just a tiebreaker, as one becomes more libertarian on the libertarian side of the line, increasingly compelling justifications must then be offered on behalf of state action. So perhaps Helen here has done more than provide an insightful presentation and analysis of the work of the justice who casts today's deciding vote. Perhaps she has also provided a criteria by which to distinguish those who merit the label libertarian from those who do not. Do they or do they not think that, at minimum, the tie goes to freedom? Thanks. Well, thank you, Randy. And as I was listening to you, it struck me that another reason why the conservatives had difficulty with the Lawrence decision is not simply their fidelity to tradition, but they have difficulty with the notion of judicially secured unenumerated rights, which is an issue that is treated at some length in Helen's book. Helen, would you like to give a few uh, comments in response to Randy's? uh... What I will say in response to Randy's comments is he he raises a point that I didn't really touch upon in my remarks, which is that one of the things that, thinking back on what drove me to write this book, one of the things that attracted me to Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence was what category do you put him in? Do you put him in liberal or conservative or libertarian or somewhere else on his own? I've always been... I mean, maybe this is because I'm an outsider looking in on the American political system. I've always been slightly frustrated by the labels liberal and conservative and maybe even libertarian. Well, perhaps I shouldn't say that here today. But certainly liberal and conservative. I've, I've always, any time anyone said to me, well, what about liberals and conservatives? My knee-jerk reaction has been to say, well, what do you mean by a conservative? What do you mean by a liberal? And one of my former students is in the audience today and he's laughing because this sounds like a regurgitation of, of one of my lectures where I hammer home this point. But I think Randy's comments suggest that it is very difficult to draw these lines. And I, there are areas of Kennedy's jurisprudence where he is clearly... We would clearly want to put him in the more conservative box whether that's the box along with Robert Bork or Rush Limbaugh, I don't know. But he, certainly in his criminal justice jurisprudence, he's what we might, if we, ha- if we were pushed to define conservatism, we would might probably say he was conservative. I try in the book to use the term libertarianism to get away from the label liberal because I, I don't think that that's a label that accurately describes Justice Kennedy. And I don't think the, conserv- the conservative label I- does either. Libertarianism seems to me, if you think about just the fundamental principles of libertarianism, then that's probably an accurate label to apply to his jurisprudence. Okay, thank you, Helen. Uh, I should also mention that Chapter 1 of the book is an excellent primer on libertarianism, libertarian theory, 
and the various strains of libertarianism. Uh, Helen is very careful to bring out that uh, the point that libertarianism is not some univocal theory about the relationship between the individual and the state. There are many strains of libertarianism, and it's to her credit that she does bring this out in Chapter 1 of the book. All right, now let's turn it over to you folks and questions that you may have. Please wait till the microphone arrives. Identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have. Yes, we have a right down here in the front, please. Good afternoon. I'm Ken Hoppala. I'm with the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change. Carbon dioxide is a non-toxic, colorless, odorless gas. Life formed on this planet when it was many times richer in carbon dioxide than today. And indeed, all green life uses carbon dioxide as food. Without it, we would be dead. Yet, uh, Mr. Kennedy joined four uh, Supreme Court justices. Let me say one other statement. Uh, Congress has spent about $20 billion trying to justify the regulation of carbon dioxide, and there is no scientific justification that would cause anything more than a modest warming. Yet, Mr. Kennedy joined four other Supreme Court justices in greatly expanding the the Clean Air Act to rule that this life-giving gas is a pollutant and can be regulated by government. This will result in a massive expansion of government powers over our lives. How do you reconcile this with defense of freedom? It's a fascinating question. And I'm afraid my response is going to sound a bit like I'm uh, a Supreme Court nominee who is trying to avoid (laughs) difficult questions. But I'm going to sort of take uh, take a point that Randy made in his comments and say that respectfully that is because that's an area of Kennedy's jurisprudence that I haven't studied and that isn't discussed in the book that a fascinating area of his decision making but I'm going to respectfully decline to answer the question because it's not something which I'm going to plead ignorance because it's not something that I know enough about to be able to accurately respond to your question I should probably, this is now a good time to observe that when I went on a book tour uh, for Restoring the Lost Constitution, uh, I went, I spoke at like 45 law schools and a bunch of other places. I found that after having written a book that was something like 250 or 300 pages long, most of the questions concerned stuff that was not in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next question. Yes, right here. Hi, Joe Henchman from the Tax Foundation. Uh, a common criticism levied against Justice Kennedy is that he relies too much on international precedent mm-hmm. uh, and the precedent of foreign laws. And, of course, this is underlined by the annual summer school he teaches in Austria, of which I'm a proud alumnus. I'm curious what, in investigating his decision and his thinking process, uh, whether you have any reflections on this criticism. Last year, I think it was, Jeffrey Tubin published a book called The Nine, where he certainly didn't treat Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence anything like as sympathetically as I do. And he spent a lot of the time in his criticism of Justice Kennedy focusing on that very point and talking about Justice Kennedy's extrajudicial activities such as the Salzburg program. What I have found is that 
Justice Kennedy really doesn't spend as much time in his opinions talking about international norms and rules as people have made him out to do. But it tends to be in the high-profile cases such as Roper versus Simmons, one of the death penalty cases, where you see he, him using these sources. Also in Lawrence versus Texas, he drew on international opinion. And it tends to be... Be careful how I put this. It tends to be in the cases where Justice Scalia writes a scathing dissent and highlights these different uses of international sources that they tend to get the most attention whereas Justice Kennedy as a whole has actually not used this very much in his jurisprudence but where he has used it it's entirely consistent with his deep commitment to civic education and the dialogue on freedom is just one part of this. Kennedy is very much believes that people need to be enlightened citizens and that one way to enlighten themselves is to draw on other views outside of their own little world. Now, he has been subject to, to criticism when he then therefore puts those principles into an opinion where it sort of makes it seem as though he's drawing on the decisions from the International Court of Justice rather than looking at the US Constitution... But really, if you sort of dig deeper into his references of international norms and rules, what he does is to, is to emphasise that at the end of the day we're all human beings and that there are all certain fundamental principles that we all live by or maybe should live by. And it's really that that he turns to in using references to international sources. Right up here. My name is Stephen Shore. I'm with the PBGC. Uh, my question is, some people would divide uh, justices rather as, at least as much as the conventional distinction between liberal, conservative, or libertarian as centripetal or centrifugal, in the sense that centripetal justices tend or foremost keep in mind the opinions of their colleagues and try to uh, count to five, even sacrificing their own uh, beliefs in the process, and centrifugal justices could be described as the primacy of their own idiosyncrasies or integrity regardless of the effects of their opinions on their colleagues. So in, with this schema, how would you declassify Justice Kennedy? Without having to pronounce the words themselves. <laughs> Well, if, if I pronounced the words, it would be with a different pronunciation because it would be centrifugal. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, <laughs> I, think he, I think he falls into, that ca into the second category, the centrifugal category, because he, he, in that respect, he's very different from someone like Justice Brennan, who was well known for, I don't want to say sacrificing his principles, but uh, using his ability to strategically engage with his other colleagues to bring other people into opinions. If he really needed to leave something out to bring other people in, he would absolutely do that. I think that Kennedy has written far too many individual solo concurrences and solo dissents where you've seen nobody else join him, that he really, really is 
is much more in that second category, where if he believes strongly about something, you are not going to get him to diverge away from that, which has been one of his one of the reasons why he has been able to be such a strong actor at the centre of the court. Because if he's been assigned to write that majority opinion, he's been assigned it probably to keep his vote, which means that, to a large extent, as long as he doesn't go way out, he's able to put into that opinion what he wants to. But he has certainly written an awful lot of opinions where nobody else has been willing to join him. So I would put him in that second category. Yes, Randy. Uh, this may fo- uh, uh, Randy Jennifer. May uh, with the Free State Foundation. This sort of follows on that. You know, he's been accused by some of being more susceptible than others to the so-called greenhouse mm-hmm. effect, Linda Greenhouse, and yep. seeking approbation, and that ties in with some of his extracurricular activities. So, and I understand my, and I've read some very good reviews of your book, by the way. And I, my impression is you focus almost exclusively on his papers and opinions and these things and uh, didn't have a chance to interview him. But if what, based on your research, uh, do you have an opinion about the extent to which this so-called effect of seeking approbation from uh, not only her but, but others and so forth, would how much that influences his jurisprudence as opposed to these convictions that you've Uh, explore in your book at all? Interestingly, when I started this project, if you'd asked me that question when I started this project, I would have had a very different answer because my opinion of Justice Kennedy, I had been led to believe that he was indeed susceptible to these different influences. Now, I believe that there is still a little bit of that that goes on, but I'm also inclined to believe that in terms of the principles that I discuss in the book, he is so passionately committed to these that what you see time and time again in his opinions are almost standard passages that he, that he reuses time and time again that suggest to me that there are certain things about which he feels so strongly that he doesn't just fly with the the winds of change. He doesn't look at what's been written on the editorial page of the New York Times if he's looking for a liberal answer or the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal if he's looking for a conservative answer. Maybe he does that. I, I suspect not with the principles that I talk about in the book, though. He's far too wedded to those principles. I'd like to take this opportunity to point out something I didn't stress in my comments, and that is Helen's book is not only thoroughly researched about the cases and decisions that Justice Kennedy has written, uh, and then putting that in the context of the the details of constitutional law. uh, She was obviously uh, immersed in all of his writings, uh, dating back to uh, the speeches he's made since before he became a judge, to the speeches he made while he was a judge on the Ninth Circuit, and then also available papers such as the Blackman papers um, uh, that concern the uh, discussions that are being uh, – conference uh, discussions that are held. And she's obviously uh, – and, and the book is full of references to uh, interoffice uh, memos in the Supreme Court between clerks. 
um, for example, on uh, on particular decisions. So when I said that the book was well researched, uh, um, you have no real that doesn't really give you a clue as to how rich. Uh, the research is, and therefore how informative it is, because it really does give you a peek into both his mind as well as to the operation of the court itself. Uh, Nigel, now you'll have a question in your mother tongue. (laughs) I don't need a translation. Let's go. Uh, I'm Nigel Ashford. I'm with the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, First of all, congratulations on the book. It's wonderful to see it. you explicitly say that you don't consider economic liberty in the book, and I completely understand that. I wonder whether you thought there – can you see any spillover from the principles in the areas that you do look at into economic liberty? Or do you think that Justice Kennedy sees them as two totally different categories, that, that he has a different set of principles or perhaps no principles when it comes to economic liberty? I, is there any relationship between these two areas in his work? Wow, what a great question. Uh, I think there is some spillover in terms of, if you think about some of the different structural principles that Kennedy tries to weave into, into some of his other opinions, particularly his federalism opinions, there you see some of the principles spilling over. But again, I'm going to kind of offer the same response as I offered to the first question and say that that's because that's not an area I talk about in great depth, I I would really only want to give a sort of superficial answer to that question. But yes, I do think there is some kind of spillover. Could I ask you a question, uh, Helen? Uh, With respect to both Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer, one can say that their overarching approach to the law uh, and to the philosophy of the Constitution is just vague enough so that they can get out whatever conclusion they want. Um, Would you care to comment? (laughs) The one exception, as I recall, was with respect to the flag-burning cases Mm -hmm. in... uh, in um, Justice Kennedy's case. Do they do just enough to get their opinions out? Uh, no, is their is there overarching approach just vague enough so that it will allow them to reach pretty much any conclusion they want? In other words, what is the fidelity between um, the, the, the opinions of uh, Justice Kennedy, Justice Breyer, you could say as well, and the law, of course, that raises the question, is their understanding of the law colored by their approach to it so that they can get out what they pretty much want? To? Well, I think their understanding of the law is definitely colored by their approach to the law. I, I see it, – it's kind of a difficult question for me to answer because I see very few similarities between Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer, it strikes me, is – much more of a pragmatic judicial soul. And so I think that he maybe falls more into the category that you're talking about than Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy, I think, is far more wedded to his principles than maybe Justice Breyer is. One of my reactions to that question is that that question could be asked to virtually every justice, Um, uh, unfortunately, regrettably. Uh, every modern justice. Uh, Justices 
um, I think can be better explained by their principle, their un- their underlying principles, which is what Helen's book is about with respect to Justice Kennedy, than with um, the by the text of the Constitution itself. Um, even those justices who are more textualist than others, and there are some, obviously, uh, tend to have leave themselves methodological outs where under more than one circumstance they say you don't have to follow the text. The most obvious one is with respect to precedent. So if you have precedent that you like that has, in your own view, misinterpreted the text, but you like the precedent, you can just follow the precedent and be consistent with your methodology and inconsistent with the text. And since every justice pretty much gives themselves that out, um, you could ask that question about every justice. I expect that you have in mind, for example, Justice Scalia in the Rage case, uh, where with Lopez, Morrison, etc., we might have thought he would uphold the doctrine of enumerated powers, yet he did not. And Justice Kennedy in the Rage case, where uh, he did not, um, uh, where in where in Lopez and Morrison he had concurring opinions, which extolled the virtue of federalism from a state's discretionary standpoint. Unlike Justice uh, Thomas's concurring opinion in Lopez, which was a textualist originalist opinion, Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion in Lopez was based on the need for individual states to have experimentation and to be able to make their policy judgments, particularly in the traditional areas like crime and other things that they had regulated in. Um, in our case, we were talking about the regulation of medicine, which was traditionally a state function. Um, not only did he not vote for us, and, and I should also say that our brief was aimed more at Justice Kennedy's view of federalism than at any other justice. Not only did he not vote for us, but he did not file a concurring opinion in which he explained why he didn't vote for us, which Justice Scalia did have the courage to do. He did file a concurring opinion and put his opinion on the line as to why he didn't vote for us. Justice Kennedy did not do that. Yes, uh, Ilya? Ilya Shapiro from Cato. Um, Are there any trends in Justice Kennedy's modest libertarianism? Um, You know, does he rule now in a way that's different than before 9-11 or, uh, you know, before he had several years of experience on the court? You know, what, what are the tendencies there? One of, the, one of Justice Kennedy's former clerks in an interview made, a, made an observation along those lines, a very astute observation, that it, it took Justice Kennedy quite a long time to be comfortable with the power that he had as a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, if you look at the articles that talk about his pompous rhetoric and his extrajudicial activities, you might say he's become too comfortable with that power. But I think that that was a very astute observation on the part of the former clerk, that it took Kennedy maybe a couple of years, two or three years, to get comfortable with his time on the court. And his concurring opinion in the flag-burning case was a very good example of that. Kennedy kind of bared his soul in that concurring opinion, and he has since said that he kind of regrets writing it. It was kind of a, hand, a, a sort of public display of hand-wringing on his part. A couple of years down the line, I think when he had been more comfortable with being a member of the court, he probably would have written a concurring opinion in that case, but not in the same way. I don't think that his, his, his principles have changed a great deal over, the t- over his time on the court, but certainly his comfort level with 
being able to write the opinions in the way he wants to has certainly become clearer over the time. All right, any other questions? All right, let me remind you once again, the book is available. It is The Tie Goes to Freedom, Justice Kennedy's uh, Justice Kennedy on Liberty. It's available outside. Do take advantage of that. And please join us upstairs for lunch after giving a warm round of applause for our guests.